Hello. Welcome to the Malibu Music Room. Well, I wonder who that could be. Why, it's Mark Stuber. Welcome. So good to see you there. Come on in. The Malibu Music Room awaits. Grammy-winning guitarist Lawrence Juber is a solo performer, recording artist, composer, and arranger. His playing fuses folk, jazz, blues, pop, and classical styles, creating a multifaceted performance that belies the use of only one instrument. First internationally recognized as lead guitarist in Beatle Paul McCartney's Wings, with whom he won a Grammy, Juber has since established himself as a world-renowned guitar virtuoso and entertainer. His LJ Plays the Beatles album was voted one of Acoustic Guitar Magazine's all-time top 10 albums. Hi, and welcome to the Malibu Music Room. Our guest today, Lawrence Juber, the legendary. Nice to see you, man. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you. So, Lawrence, you were born... I was. I as was a small born. child <laughs> in East London. So, tell me about it initially getting into guitar playing. Well, I started playing guitar in November of 63, mm. which was really kind of the peak of, of the first wave of Beatlemania. Right. Because we didn't have that Ed Sullivan moment. Right. Not really. We, it kind of grew throughout the whole year. Mm -hmm. And I'd already decided that I wanted to play guitar because I was a fan of Cliff Richard, mm -hmm. The Shadows. And all you could hear on the radio was twangy guitar. And it was like, I right. want to do that. And my dad wanted me to play the saxophone because he was a big band fan. Right. And so I, I agreed I'd, I'd learn the clarinet in school. And the, <laughs> but my, I made sure my name was at the bottom of the list. So they ran, <laughs> ran out of clarinets before they got to me. And then for my 11th birthday, I got a guitar. And I just never put it down. May I ask what kind of guitar? Oh, some cheap East European thing with a bolt-on neck. Right. Guaranteed not to split. Um, kind of, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but what was interesting was because it had a bolt-on neck, the, the, the fingerboard was kind of cantilevered, like on an arch right. top. But, but it was, you could move it. So, and because the action was like this, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got ca cardboard from a cornflakes box and I stuffed it underneath oh, to bring the action. I didn't learn for many years that you could actually adjust it with a, with a key, <laughs> which is why there was like a bolt on the outside. Well, none of us knew about people to set guitars up you kind of well, took them that, yeah. you, you kind of took them from the store and played them yeah. and then when it didn't play anymore you tried to sell it to some newbie and buy a new oh, one i learned how to set up strats <clears throat> yeah. fairly early just because oh the action's not right so oh, okay there's like an allen wrench and you know yeah well i had the jaguar yeah. and it had all those so it came with the allen wrench and i, right. and I figured well i want <laughs> the lowest possible action so I just put everything down of course things started buzzing yeah, i wasn't realizing so. that you know anyway we won't go into too much technicalities here. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm interested, um, when you first started playing, were you able to find someone to teach you what you wanted to play? Um, not exactly. Yeah. I did have some lessons from a local teacher, like group lessons. But I, there was a book, uh, Play in a Day, by Bert Whedon, who was a session player in England. Yeah. And that was a famous book. And pretty much everybody learned from that book at some point. Mm -hmm. And in the back of the book was the music for When the Saints Go Marching In. And, mm -hmm. and one rainy afternoon, I'm 11 years old, and I'm looking at this, and it's, okay, so that's a C, and that's there. And 
that's a D and that's the open string. And it was like I learned how to sight read in that afternoon. Interesting. And then um, I had basically figured out that I could, you know, I could learn stuff by ear. So I could read music a little bit and I could learn by ear. And then when I was 13, there was a local band leader who started taking me out playing weddings and things. And I remember the very first gig, the bass player leaned over and he said, lad, if you don't know the chords, just play the bridge of I Got Rhythm and mm. rhythm changes yeah, yeah. You know, and cycle of fifths. And I learned how to listen for, for five, one and, you know, two, mm -hmm. five, one and all of that. And it just, that was my kind of early ear training. Yeah. And then because I was listening to the radio and kind of deconstructing records and figuring out what all the parts were, I really wanted to learn more music theory. And, and they started offering classical guitar lessons in high school. So I hmm. took classical lessons. And that allowed me to then continue to study music theory. And so it was really kind of just a lot of it. And still to this day, a lot of it has just been self-taught. Yeah. When I went to college, I went to Goldsmiths College, which was part of the University of London. I studied music and musicology. I didn't study guitar. I never did the conservatory thing. Yes. Because I was already making money playing, and, and by, by then I was playing in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And, oh. and, but, but I always had, as a teenager, there were two very distinct tracks in what I was doing as an electric guitarist, you know, as a blues-based lead guitarist, inspired by Clapton and Hendrix and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page mm -hmm. and George Harrison. Um, but on the acoustic side, I was fascinated by the folk guitar players. You know, so it was Bert Yance, John Remborn. Yeah. Not so much Davy Graham, because I was a little too young when Davy Graham first kind of hit the folk scene. Uh, but Pentangle and... Um, Paul Simon, early Paul Simon too. I mean, mm -hmm. there was a, an album, Paul Simon album, the Paul Simon songbook that he did in London in 1965, which kind of was in between when the Sounds of Silence was first released right. and then when it was re-released with the, with the backing. Right, right. And then, <clears throat> you know, their career took off. But, um, but you know, like Angie, which is, you know, Paul... Paul Simon had done, which is a J Davy Graham tune, was really yeah. kind of like a, a rite of passage. If you could play that descending bass line and then play the melody on top, it was really, you know, that was, that was a thing. Yeah, see, I always think of that as Chet Atkins. Well, I see, I didn't <clears throat> listen to Chet. Yeah. I did listen to Mel Travis, mm -hmm. but I was never, I wasn't steeped in that Kentucky thumb-picking yeah. style that, that Chet, you know, was the ultimate representation of. Yeah. For me, it was that English folk Baroque mm -hmm. and Renaissance music. Like when I was in college, I was playing Renaissance lute. Yeah. So the, the whole Elizabethan thing kind of was more, more interesting to me than the boom chuck right. chet thing. It was just not my main focus. Well, let's back up a little bit to Pentangle. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> because we'll put up a few things while we're speaking here. Right. People may not be uh, aware of Pentangle. Um, and Fairport Convention. Uh, well, Fairport Convention in particular, they were a local band. So yeah. I would see them, you know, at least once a month. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a club in um, North London called the Country Club, which they played at regularly. And so I was there the night that Sandy Denny debuted Who Knows Where the Time Goes. Mm. And Richard Thompson playing the 
the uh, Gold Top Les Paul and doing 20-minute right. solos on Re Reno, Nevada. And didn't you end up playing on a Charles Osnivor version oh, of I Who played, Knows Where the Time Goes? Um, I, the French that version I don't, of that? That I don't recall specifically. I played on a number of Charles Osnivor right. albums. Well, you did, by the um, way. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I learned stuff. Right, I, mean, right, right. I didn't know. I played on an album of his in Paris in 1977 that I learned was number one in France for almost the entire year of 78. Mm. I learned that from my Wikipedia page. Wow. So. <laughs> so when did you when did you discover open tunings? Oh, that was much later. Well, mm. I, I, I fooled around a little Even bit with as Pentagon a teenager. And stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, no, that wasn't really... I was... It, for me, for me, the, the pentangle thing, that, it, that folk baroque was a texture more than it was specifics. I never really learned things note for note, with the exception of Eric Clapton's uh, solo on, um, on Hideaway, mm. on the Blues Breakers album, mm. which was just so such yeah, a thing. Right. And the occasional Beatles solo. But... It was for me. It was just understanding conceptually what was going on, and then kind of figuring out my way, my own way to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wasn't really performing. I mean, my ambition was to be a studio musician. So, um, yeah, I mean, a little bit of open G tuning, but but alter tunings for me was was much later. It was when I really started getting into my solo fingerstyle career. So, when you're working in the studio, what mm -hmm. years were those roughly? I started doing studio work full-time right after college in 1975. Okay. And so I had three years of doing that in London before I got asked to join Wings. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, that was a busy time. I mean, I was working sometimes three sessions a day, seven days a week, sometimes four sessions. And what would be your rig for electric in those oh, days? Oh, then it was just like a, I started off with a Fender Champ. But ended up with a deluxe. Right. But in terms of, because I remember having a, the Vox treble booster was the first pedal I had, but it wasn't really a pedal. You plugged it into the amp. Yeah. And I the, mean, the Fender blender. I was wondering what yeah. you guys had over no, there. No, I mean, it, for me, it was, it was a, a, a briefcase with you know, a bunch of MXR pedals. And you know, when the Electric Mistress came out, I mean, that was a big deal. Right. You know? um, no delay pedal. Uh, Really, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty basic. A Strat Les Paul. Um, for a while, I had a Guild F50 acoustic and a classical and a 12 string, yeah. and that. And then I got the first Roland MIDI guitar set up, right. which was a real pain because you couldn't program anything. You, yeah, you, know, you had to kind of. I like, had that the VG8. Was it before one the VG8? Oh, oh, wow. yeah, the, whatever it was called. And then I then I traded that for an ARP Avatar. Wow. I had one of the few ARP Avatars, which I ended up using on. On the wings back to the egg album, hmm. um, but you know my my setup was pretty basic. Um, so you had Fender amps rather than a Vox or something. Yeah, because that was a good studio amp. Blues Junior. Well, the f the thing about the Fenders was you know that was what a lot of the studio players used, right? And they were relatively light. You know, so when you're yeah. running into <laughs> Trident, you know, for a two o'clock session, and you still got to park park your car in the middle of the West End, mm -hmm. you know, one, schlepping an AC30 would not be right high on the agenda. I don't think Trident even exists anymore. Does not it? anymore. Yeah, right. no. All those places are gone. Yeah, Olympic is gone. Them, yeah. Uh, yeah, Olympic. You know, that, and that would literally be, you know, I'd start the day at Olympic and then go to Trident and then maybe at Abbey Road in the evening, right? Or right. the BBC or something like that. 
But let's back up a little bit to Goldsmiths, just uh -huh. for my audience, a little bit about that. We've had a couple of people on here from the Royal Academy of Music, but Goldsmith, I'd like you to just give me a little overview of that. Well, Goldsmiths wasn't a conservatory. Mm -hmm. Goldsmiths was one of the colleges of London University that was also a teacher training college and an art school. So really kind of adjacent were the art school and the music department. In mm -hmm. fact, in my senior year, uh, our artist in residence was Manfred Mann. Hmm. But he spent 90% of the time in the art school, not in the music department. Wow. Um, and it was, it was a musicology-based program, so I, I did a lot of studying of music history, um, as well as doing the theory side of it. And I taught guitar while I was there. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I wasn't learning guitar because there was nobody, there was nobody that, that I could learn from. Mm -hmm. in that context. I, so I took advantage of, of the, the professors there who were all like experts in early music or you know, had specialties in mm -hmm. very particular areas of music. Um, but it was, you know, it was all really to in, improve my musical awareness for doing studio work. Well, it's interesting to me that you went right into theory, that you did get theory, because um, you know, from my own experience, I was wanted to play like Chuck Berry, so I didn't really want to know anything about theory, which I regret now because I had a really good jazz teacher and I didn't want to know anything about that. Yeah, well, I was fascinated by harmony and just the, the way the music was put together, the mechanics yeah. of it, which I really didn't fully appreciate what I'd learned until much later when I started like scoring mm -hmm. for movies and television. And Maybe explain to our audience a little bit about the lute. How many strings, how it's set up, how it's... Well, how many strings do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, the lute basically is, is, I mean, it looks like a mandolin on steroids. Right. You know, and and is, was the, the number one instrument during the Renaissance. I mean, keyboards were pretty rudimentary yeah. in that period. And the lute was capable of playing finger-style polyphonic music. Um, and the repertoire was was you know, quite reflective of, of all the different musical styles that were going on in that period. Um, as far as number of strings, I mean, typically, you know, early lutes had six courses, like double strings. You know, a course is, is one, two, or three strings that yeah. tuned typically to the same pitch, but not always. It might be an octave. Um, and the top string would normally be single because you you know you couldn't get thin enough gut that would stay in tune mm -hmm. to you know to do a double string on top. Um, and if you imagine the tuning is like a guitar, but everything is shifted back a string. So if you take a guitar and you tune the third string down from a G to an F sharp and then put a capo on the third fret or on the fifth fret, you're pretty much in loot territory. Mm. And you could pull up go online and pull up tablature from, you know, earliest tablature, 1507, and, and play it on a guitar. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing that fascinated me about the lute was simply that it was fingerstyle and, yeah. and the texture of it. And it, it was also kind of, you know, a bonus when it came to, you know, impressing my early music professors in, in It's interesting to me how that fingerstyle is what attracted you you know, in the United States, it becomes more like you talk about Chet Atkins or cotton picking or that style of picking. Well, that, that was the other thing, was Stefan Grossman. Of course. Was, was ragtime. 
And, and so I was, you know, because Ragtime had moving bass lines, it had elements that I could relate to from playing Bach, for yeah. example. Um, but Stefan Grossman was really kind of the guy. In fact, mm-hmm. I did a concert recently and Stefan came and wow. I, I gave him a shout out at wow. one point because, yeah, because yeah. we have this kind of mutual wow. thing going. I'm interested, um, what do you think were the best Beatles solos? Oh, that's that's a question that I mean, probably from, needs needs an let, a, let me let me also an, filter an that a little bit. Scotch to oh, company. <laughs> I was going to say just filtered when you were thirteen or fourteen. Um, well, then it was really you know it was like just whatever what the impact was, and I you didn't think it really you know Beatles solos were not like cream solos. Yeah. Um, that they were composed, they were structured within the context of the record, yeah. as opposed to you know what evolved by 1967, 68, yeah. when when you know Clapton and Hendrix are doing extended well, and you had overdrive amps, improvised you know. solos. Yeah, well, you people... have overdrive and you know by the time you get to Revolver, yeah, Taxman, Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, but the early ones. I mean, for me, the thing that I think is is where George Harrison is not understood, is that he very rarely played the same thing twice. His things were really, they were really composed leads. It wasn't just, exactly. here's eight bars, go. Right. Well, that's the thing is, you know, you listen to the early takes of, of early Beatles yeah. stuff, and, and you can hear George developing it compositionally, knowing that they're not going to get the rhythm track in mm-hmm. one, two, three, or four takes. He know, right. He's kind of like targeting... Exactly when yeah. it's going to come together, you know. I mean, like something like the you know the solo on on Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah, you know, it's it's really cool stuff. But it's yeah. but it's it's not so much improvisational as it is composed. I love the solo on um, All My Loving. Yeah, because that's too. really Chet. You know? Yeah, I mean, he's doing Chet. It's Chet through point. Scotty Moore. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that you know, but you know, some of the early. Early things like you know when when he's doing Chuck Berry, I mean on Roll Over Beethoven, you know he uses Chuck Berry as a as a springboard. But yeah. some of the BBC stuff where George is you know a little bit freer than he is on the. And he's doing more roll offs than really Chuck Berry does, I think yeah. too. You know, so. well Chuck I mean, Chuck's very much was just mostly playing kind of horn lines. It was yeah, it was horn lines. You know, That's which where he, he got which it. he got from T Bone Walker. Right. So when did um, when did open tunings come into your focus? Well, we have to, I think, kind of get the lead up to it was after Wings, which was a great education. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I can sum it up that... Well, we have to do it. We yeah, can't. We have to do that as a section. We have to do that as it's. Well, we, we, do, we can do that next. You know, I, I got my, my bachelor's degree from Goldsmiths, London University, and my master's from McCartney University. Right. I mean, it was it was a great education. I learned, you know, to hang on to your music publishing. Mm. I learned how to make records. I learned how to work with your wife and, and have a happy marriage. Right. I learned never to smuggle marijuana into Japan. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a long conversation when you want to get into the granular details. Yeah. And I covered a lot of it in my Guitar with Wings book. Yes. Um, the... It just was a remarkable experience. And, and I'd never really thought of myself as a stage performer. 
up till that point. So getting up on stage with Paul McCartney and Danny Lane and yeah. who were people that I had you know, were my inspirations as a teenager. You, know, you came remember, in there's through a ten Danny, year, right? Yeah, there's a ten year you know, right. age difference. Uh, yeah, I came in through Danny because I was playing lead guitar uh, in the house band of a TV show with David Essex. Is that the same Rock On David? Rock On David wow. Essex, yeah, who was a big pop star in England in the, you know, this was 77, September of 77. And, and each week there would be a guest on the show, and one week was Twiggy. In fact, there's a cool version of, of David Essex and Twiggy doing Send in the Clown. Wow. With a very prominent acoustic guitar from me. Wow. Um, and then another week was like Ronnie Spector was a guest. Mm. And then, then Danny Lane came on and did Go Now, and they'd given me a guitar solo, and he liked my In lieu playing. of the piano solo. In lieu of the piano solo. He oh. liked my playing, and apparently, and I didn't know this until many years later, that he called up the musical director to find out if I was versatile. <laughs> because, you know, mm. Wings were looking for a guitar player. Mm. And Jimmy McCulloch, who was my predecessor, was mm -hmm. a fabulous rock guitar player. Yes. But he didn't really cover all the bases. Right. Uh, and so having been assured of my versatility... It and then, then you were mentally stable. Well, there was that. Yeah, I was sober. <laughs> um, there was... I mean, this didn't happen overnight. I, I got the call in April of 78. I was actually working at Abbey Road in Studio 2. Oh. And I'd never been up into the control room. You know, there's that staircase that yeah. goes up, and you know, as a musician, you stayed, stayed in, you know, yeah. in the in the recording room, and so as a result, I had no idea until 25 years later that I played on the Alan Parsons Tales of Mystery and Imagination, because I was just playing a session, yeah, and never went up to, you know, <clears throat> the adults were up there, yeah, exactly, yeah, well, so. Um, but I got a call at, when I was at Abbey Road to come and uh, jam with Denny on Monday. And oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. Mm. You know, so I knew they were looking for a guitar player, but it wasn't truly on my radar uh, because I was very established as a session player and doing well with it. And then I went in and, you know, I panicked a little bit because I didn't know any Wings tunes. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, my record collection was Larry Carton and Lee Rittenour and Return to Forever right, and Weather right. Report and a lot of fusion stuff. Yeah. Was, stuff that I was really listening to. Um, and I borrowed some LPs from my brother, realized that you know, it was kind of a lost cause to try and learn right. know, a lot of these songs. And as it turned out, we just jammed on some Chuck Berry grooves and mm -hmm. reggae stuff. And yeah. they, Paul said, what are you doing for the next few years? And uh, you know, I had to think about it for a nanosecond. Because <clears throat> you know, I'd established myself, that my ambition to be a studio player, and I was doing it. I was making good money. and. But I wasn't going to turn down the opportunity to work with the Beatles. Now let's talk a little bit about Back to the Egg. Because uh -huh. there's some interesting things on there. Uh, maybe not to you. <laughs> I'm interested if they were to you or not. When he had you play through that Eventide harmonizer. Right. Well, I think that probably was Chris Thomas's idea. Because mm. Chris was co-producing. And we were doing uh, To You. Which was actually the first track that we recorded. Um, which was kind of like this weird kind of punky vibe. Yeah, but he had done Sex Pistols, so... Yeah, and, 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 but, but that was kind of in the air. I mean, there was also like Spin It On was, you know, kind of punk rockabilly. Right, right. But there was just this kind of like... To You had this kind of like left field kind of vibe to it. And um, when it came to me overdubbing the solo, uh, 
they ran my guitar through a harmonizer, which Paul was playing randomly in real time. Right. It wasn't like it got set to a particular pitch. Mm -hmm. He was manipulating the pitch as I so was playing. So how was playing. that? Were you hearing that in your... I was hearing that radio. in my headphones. So what I was playing, I could hear the amp in the room. Okay. You know, strat through a, a mess of boogie, I think it was. But, um, but I, I could hear the amp in the room. But in the headphones, I was hearing what Paul was doing. And somehow we kind of got into a groove with it. Really? It seems you know, so difficult to do. Yeah, well, you know, you kind of like, you know, the, this kind of creative, you know, creative yeah. mind meld thing yeah. starts to happen. So Fantastic. Yeah. Now, did he realize what a great acoustic guitarist you were at the time? Or where did that come you from? You know, I, I mean, I appreciate the, the compliment. I, it was not my primary focus. My primary focus in Wings was to be the lead guitar player. Right. So, yeah, I did some finger picking. But I wasn't doing arrangements mm -hmm. like I ended, like I subsequently yeah. did. Um, there is that one song though, which I, you guys recorded at that castle, where you and Paul are doing a, a interest in uh, an acoustic intro. Well, there was um, there was Winter Rose, which has a finger picking, mm -hmm. part, which was just me. Okay. Um, which we didn't actually record. We recorded that in Scotland. We okay. recorded Love Awake, which it segued into. Okay, I think that was the song where it's listed as you and he recording it in a stairwell in that. Oh, Lindsay. the stairwell. No, that was We're Open Tonight. Ah, yeah. Was Paul, Paul was playing acoustic out in the room, and I was in this medieval, you know, it's a medieval castle. Yeah. I'm in this stone stairwell playing a 12-string, and I took it out of the case, and the, the, the octave G-string was not at the right pitch. But it worked, mm. so I didn't touch it. Wow. And so I'm doubling what Paul's doing, but there's like this little twist to it. And may so. I ask, what was that octave? What pitch was that? I don't remember. Mm. Just for Sometimes it's just like, for you, you just nerds out there. You don't question it. You know? Right. No, I believe you. Yeah, when it works, I've had those don't think happen. about it. Yeah, yeah. Don't retune. <laughs> so if I can just ask, what about all those studio changes during that album? What was that all about? Well, you know, we started in Scotland. Um, in July of 78. We'd actually been there during May. Uh, we spent a, a few weeks just kind of jamming and rehearsing a few right. things and then uh, shot the video for um, I've Had Enough, which I'm not on the record, but I'm in the video. Yeah. Same thing with Steve Holly, the drummer, because uh, that was the next single off of yes. London Town. Um, so we're up in Scotland and recording up there. While we were there, we also spent a day doing a bunch of demos for Rupert, the Rupert the Bear yes. uh, concept. Animation, yeah. Um, and then um, we took August off and then we went into Abbey Road. No, we went to the castle first. We spent September at Lim Castle, which was close to where Paul and, and Linda lived because oh, right. they'd moved out of London and the kids were now in school down there um, and then we went up to back to London and worked at Abbey Road was Lim Castle actually a studio or no it was a medieval castle mm -hmm. we brought in the mobile just as we'd done in Scotland because you know in Scotland right. it wasn't a real studio it was the barn right so you start off in a barn then go to a medieval castle then go to Abbey Road studio too right and then um, by the time we get into January of 79, we couldn't get back into Abbey Road because Cliff Richard had booked it. 
And so Paul decided that we weren't intending to do any more recording. We were going to mix. So he put in a studio in the basement of his office in Soho Square uh, in London. And um, we started mixing the album. And then he, you know, we had one occasion where he said, well, you know, we need a new single. Uh, what are we going to do? And over the weekend, he wrote Daytime, Nighttime Suffering. And hmm. then Monday morning came in and said, I want to record it. And, but, you know, the drums are in like a little kitchenette. You're area. right, right. Um, <clears throat> and actually, it was really, I mean, that was like a home studio almost, mm -hmm. uh, except, of course, we had 24 tracks. And um, so we also finished up Good Night Tonight mm. in that environment and then proceeded to, to mix and then went into Abbey Road to finish mixing. So it was really, you know, it was Scotland, it was the castle, it was, um, it was Soho Square and then back to Abbey Road. Uh, and then we went back to the castle to shoot the videos for Back to the right. Egg. And while we were there, we, we also recorded a Denny Lane song called Weep for Love. It was kind of a cool, cool tune, but that wasn't part of the egg session. So tell me a little bit about Rockestra. Rockestra was it October third, seventy eight, I think. Paul had the idea of doing a rock orchestra. He'd actually had, I think, the, the theme had been in his head for a few years, and so he just gathered Townsend and Dave Gilmore and Hank Marvin and mm -hmm. um, Jimmy Page, but he never showed up. His amplifier was there, but he never came. <laughs> Um, John Bonham and it would have been Keith Moon, but he died. died yeah. And so Kenny Jones did it, and then Steve Holly, who was you know a wing strummer, mm -hmm. and you know three bass players, you know multiple keyboard players, mm -hmm. percussion, brass section. I mean, it was it was like a rock orchestra, and we mm -hmm. did two tunes in you know in an afternoon. Wow! Everybody checked their egos at the door. Amazing. Uh, the only thing was that. Uh, they had a film crew there, but they'd kind of neglected to get releases from everybody. Oh. So, you know, there, there's film footage of, you know, the entire session. They managed to eke out like a 20-minute kind of like mm -hmm. mini documentary, but, but they couldn't get everybody to sign off. Interesting. Yeah. So one quick question about the inevitable tour. Uh-huh. I mean, that had to be the biggest up and the biggest down all in the same week. Well, we had a little bit of a delay before the downer mm. <laughs> as far as... I mean, the UK tour went really well. Yeah. And we ended up in Glasgow and recorded... The whole show was recorded, which is bootlegged as Last Flight. And coming up, the live version of Coming Up came from that, which was, I think, quite representative. That whole show was quite representative of where the band was going, mm -hmm. you know, which was more of a rock band than a pop group. And then, of course, you know, Paul gets busted in... Yeah. In Japan, in Tokyo. So when that happened, did, since it wasn't clear that he was going to be out anytime soon, did right. you think that's the end? Of, I mean, no, I mean, we, we, we were obligated to leave Tokyo after a few days. Yeah. The band, everybody else was. But, you know, and once, once Paul got out, I mean, he was back in the studio within a week mixing the Glasgow show. Right. You know, so we were involved in. in in some of those sessions, and then Wings kept going. I mean, Wings kept going for another year. Yeah, um, it wasn't the, the end of it by mm -hmm. any means. It just, but the touring kind of lost yeah. momentum. So we didn't do the U.S. tour that w yeah. had been discussed. If we had in you know July of of 1980, we would have had a number one record, and, sure. you know, doing a U U.S. tour. But it wasn't to be. 
And so I'd, but I'd already started establishing some business in New York. So by the time we get to January of um, 81, when Wings is still in the studio, we were finishing up what, what Paul was referring to as cold cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I was already making plans to move to New York. So I got there at the end of January and had been in New York just a few months when I met Hope, who became my wife, and she was from L.A., and I ended up moving out to L.A. And did you, since you already had plans in New York, was did Hope help with plans in L.A., or how did you... Uh, well, I was involved in some projects in New York, one of which was with um, uh, Richard T. Bear, uh, who I've been playing with here recently. Oh. We'd lost touch for like 30 years, and then you know, he has a band, Route 66, with Danny Sywell playing drums, so he mm. has two wings in the band from wow. different eras of wings. But Richard and I go back go back to 79 is when we first met in New Amazing. York. But I got into doing sessions in New York, um, I just I couldn't see staying in London. It was having tasted America. I yeah. wanted more, um, and I got into I got started getting hired for jingle sessions and some records and things. But but I just started coming out to LA and I liked it better. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been here before, but but to actually have kind of a real base yeah. in in LA. And then Hope and I got married um, in. March of 82, she got pregnant on our wedding night. And all of a sudden, there's like a family. You wow. Know? And I didn't want to go out on the road. I was turning down yeah. possibilities. and But then I got into studio work pretty quickly. Wow. And while I'm doing studio work in L.A., I'm also starting to really develop my a kind of a solo finger style thing, which was always an ambition. And was that when the, when, the, when the open tunings came? Not immediately. Um, I had been, start, I'd been writing stuff. In fact, I started writing while I was in Wings. That was really the beginning of it because I never considered myself to be a composer. I was always a guitar player. That mm-hmm. was my self-identification. Yeah. Um, but having watched Paul in the creative process, that inspired me. And so I started writing and I was playing you know, writing acoustic guitar pieces. And then uh, my friend James Lee Stanley, who's a great singer-songwriter, had an, a record label and offered me a record deal. And so 1990, you know, so this is now, you know, almost a full decade after Wings, yeah. I put out a solo album, Solo Flight, which got radio airplay. And so I did another album, Naked Guitar. And I still, the auto-tuning thing was not truly on the radar. And then I started getting requests from people that I was doing business with. Hey, you know, you know, you're so comfortable in standard tuning, try something else. So that was when I I started playing in Daggat and realized as I went along that it had enormous untapped potential. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of became a thing. Yeah, I still do a lot in standard tuning, but I right. do a lot in alter tuning. So Crosby was still in Ash and Joni Mitchell really hadn't affected that, you. That, at that didn't point. affect me, no. <clears throat> Nor did um, Nick Drake. Or, uh, right. It was really, you know, because my my finger style roots were still kind of, you know, classically and ragtime based, and those, you know, alter tunings weren't really on the radar yeah. so much there. Um, but it wasn't until. My third album, LJ, that that I really got into 
mm-hmm. multitude. And that was Dagat Okinji. Right. Okinji Minor. Right. I do want to backtrack a bit to Spyro Love Me. <laughs> I was a session player in London. And I, uh, I was, my mentor in that world was a, a violin player a contractor for, in England called The Fixers. David Katz, who was responsible for launching a lot of studio careers. And he was the contractor. Uh, Marvin Hamlish was scoring The Spy Who Loved Me, and, and I got booked to play on it. And there was one particular session when um, we did a, an instrumental version of Nobody Does It Better, which was Marvin playing piano, me playing um, electric guitar, playing Les Paul and then a string orchestra. Uh, and I had no idea until fairly recently that that was actually, that recording was actually nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. yeah I had no mm-hmm. idea. Um, but while we were on that session, they said, oh, we need some guitar licks on this. And they played me like 32 bars of, of a track. And I played some licks and then, you know, forgot all about it. And then... A few years ago, it was noted to me that that was actually uh, the Carly Simon record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm on that, even though I didn't realize that I was on it. Amazing. Um, you know, because sometimes you, they, they throw stuff at you, and you know, okay, I'll do you know, yeah. play some licks. And well, it's out of context. On. Yeah, completely <laughs> out of context, yeah. That's um, quite amazing. So I got to play the James Bond theme. I got to play that, you know. Fantastic. The twangy thing, which right. was a, a, for us you know, nerds, a real thrill. Give me a little bit of what the setup was for that. I was playing a, um, a white Stratocaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably through, I might have been a music band amp. Mm. But not an outboard reverb unit or anything like that. No, that was, it was, that, that was done at CTS in right. Wembley, so they would have used you know, their yeah. chamber or whatever. So let's hear a little bit of your... Kurt albums. I mean, you've been very successful with your Beatle albums, and um, I mean, that's been unbelievable. Well, I've done, I think I've done 27 albums. I oh lost goodness. count. I mean, uh, I brought a little selection of, of the more recent Thank ones you. in my Christmas album, Holy yes. Days and Holy Nights. We'll show all those. Um, LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles, which mm. is um, my third one. I'm just about finishing the fourth, which is the Fab Four. Of course. Um, Touchstones, which actually goes along with this book, which is um, the, um, this is a history of of fingerstyle going back to the lute. Oh, wow. And there's like, you know, and there's all illustrations and transcriptions of of lute music. This actually goes up through the early 1920s with some of the parlor guitar music. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my most recent album downtown was recorded at capitol in one five hour session oh, wow. with al schmidt engineering and Amazing. it has tunes like caravan limehouse blues so. i think it's important to note on these that you're not overdubbing right no, because i think people don't when people hear things you're going to do something for us later and they think they're hearing the two point. or three think, guitars yeah. yeah and it's insane as a guitarist it's like insane well you know it's, it's i mean i played with great bass players so i know how to construct a good bass line yeah and, and just being able to coordinate the melody and the bass. And that goes back to the whole Angie thing mm-hmm. with the descending bass line, right. and, you know, a melody on top. Um, and it's, 
just it's what I do. It's yeah. You know, it's my my self expression. Nobody does it better. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I, I, you know, there um, one could argue there are. I mean, there are great players out there who do. Of course, but Acoustic Magazine has well, yeah. Their readers poll has decided yeah, yeah. that you are well, on top of this. I do want to say something about your daughter Ilse. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Just a just a brief. It's just interesting because you don't think yourself as a, being a composer so much, and she went really with. Well, yeah, I mean, I became a composer. Yes. And my wife, Hope, and I write songs together, but mostly they're either comedy or theater mm -hmm. or both. I mean, we have, right. We, right now we're in the middle of uh, uh, finalizing negotiations to launch our Brady Bunch musical next year because her dad was Sherwood Schwartz who created right. the Brady Bunch. So it's kind of like the family shoe store. When Lovely. It comes to that. But Ilse was clearly a songwriter from, you know, she started off as a drummer, but picked up guitar. There was always a guitar on the couch, and, you know, she Hardly started enough. picking it up. Yeah. Um, she started writing songs when she was 14, and she had, like, three songs under her belt, and her, grabbed her one night and said, you're coming with me, and took her to an open mic and made her get up and, wow. and perform, and, and everybody loved it, and she realized that there was something in, to, in that. But eventually, um, you know, it took a long time, but, but about five years ago, she started really writing hits. And the first one she co-wrote was um, Fireball for Pitbull. Mm. Um, and then it just went on. She started getting involved in writing sessions and got featured on a few EDM tracks. And now, I mean, most recently, she's, uh, she co-wrote Mark Ronson's latest album, Miley Cyrus's recent stuff. I mean, you have to go to a Wikipedia page. Yeah, so. we'll put a little, yeah, we have a little carrot on the bottom with some of her. I, that's where I go to find out what she's <laughs> right, doing. Right, right. I mean, it's really, um, it's really, you know, hashtag proud dad. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, proud dad, thank you for coming oh, to the Melbourne Music. And let's Thanks. hear a couple of tunes you now. Bet. All right, yeah. sounds good. All right, gang, let's do it. So, this is a tune of mine called Cobalt Blue.
So one of my favorite Beatles songs, uh, John Lennon composition, Strawberry Fields Forever. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming. Really a pleasure having you. Oh, my pleasure. Lawrence Juber, and thank you guys so much. See you next time on the Malibu Music Room. Yeah.